Hey everyone, and welcome to Behind the Box. I'm your host, Sherry, and we'll be interviewing passionate people who are on top of their game, discussing all things workplace culture and diving a little deeper into thought-provoking topics we think you'll love. We truly hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business, or workplace. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, in today's episode, I speak with Emily Jacks. She's an author, speaker, leadership coach, and millennial expert. In this episode, she shares her personal journey with us, being completely open and transparent about the realities of being a business owner and what it really takes. Plus, she shares her perspective and research on why and how different behaviors play out in a multi-generational workforce. We also discuss the art of communication, coaching, leadership, and more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening in. That I like to start off with all my conversations mm-hmm. is to give the audience context so that they understand who the, who the person is that mm-hmm. they're listening to, where they're from, what makes them them. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear about Emily and who, who she is and what makes up you. Okay, it's such a broad question. Where do I start? <laughs> um, so I guess I grew up in Eltham in Melbourne so um and I came from like a kind of working class family so I was the first person in my family to go to university which was like a massive thing and I went to um, Deakin University and I studied commerce because my dad told me that that's what I should study. My dad told me to study business degrees. So I actually wanted to study anthropology and he talked me out of it and said there was no jobs for anthropologists. Um, I think of Simon Sinek now and think, yeah, good one, Dad. Um, And then I studied commerce and I absolutely hated it for the first year and wanted to drop out so many times. But uh, my dad was pretty good and he said to me, Emily, do you like working at Coles? Because I was working at Coles at the time. And I said, no, not really. And he said, well, that's pretty much your future if you decide to quit uni. And I was like, okay, cool, I'm just going to stay in uni. And I actually majored in human resource management and marketing. So I kind of did the human behaviour subjects anyway. And then left uni and it was, uh, at that time, it was the recession. Um, So there was no jobs for graduates. And so my first couple of jobs out of uni are not even really on my CV because I was so shit <laughs> and they were nothing to do with really what I studied and I ended up having to move to England so I moved to London my wow. best mate from uni moved over there and he went over there and said there's heaps of jobs in HR and so off I went and when I was 21 or 22 um, it was 1999 yeah. <laughs> really interesting so, yeah, I was over there for, like, the year 2000. Wow. Um, and within a week, I had a job at the Royal Bank of Scotland in HR. So it was a really good move. And then um, September 11 happened. Oh, yeah. And I ended up coming home because, yeah, it was just it was really quite a shock, I think, for everyone. I was working in financial markets. So I worked at the Royal Bank of Scotland in their financial markets team. So... When September 11 happened, we all got sent home because I was worried that they were going to bomb the financial district in London. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty terrifying. And I remember coming home on a British Airways flight and there was literally 10 people on the flight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Everyone was probably terrified. Of they were, yeah. Dogging the ground. I was a dog. 
um, making weird noises. Um, so then I came home and I got a job at um, Holden at General Motors, which was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I stayed there. For, it's fine. <laughs> I stayed there for five years and I had a different job every year, um, which was amazing. And one of those jobs was um, I got sent to South Australia to our manufacturing plant on a development assignment. Um, and so I packed up my life, moved over there. I was about 26, I think. And I was the only HR person on site for um, the whole plant. So there was six different plants. It was like the size of five MCG stadiums. So I would just run from from um, plant to plant. Like there's the fabrication plant, there was the body shop, there's the paint shop. And so I was a young female. I looked, I look still young now, but I looked very young then. And, um, you do look very young. Uh, so yeah, I was dealing with good skin. With um, we've got the dog in the video now. Um, I was dealing with uh, full-on union reps trying to bully me, and most of the work I did was case management. So dealing with um, terminations, um, EO bullying and harassment kind of disputes. So what do you think made you? so strong to have those conversations with those types of people um especially if you were the young female and the only HR person in that space what do you think gave you that resilience because I I think even when I look back to being that age around Mm -hmm. 26 there's no way I would have had the confidence to to do that what what do you think gave you that confidence I don't know I've always had this Philosophy. I think it's just from my dad, kind of fake it till you make it. Yeah. And so I just have this belief that I can do anything and I see everything as an opportunity and, and a challenge. And I was so excited and grateful to have those opportunities because I've always felt that that's when you learn, when you're uncomfortable and you're out of your comfort zone. So I will always put my hand up to be in those situations where I feel completely out of depth because I know that that's when the growth happens. Yeah. And I think that that is that mindset has served me really well being a business owner and an entrepreneur because that's pretty much your day-to-day life. Yeah, definitely. And you have to be able to do that and believe that anything is possible, but I also am quite open to putting my hand up and saying, "Hey, I've never done that before. Can I have some help, some guidance?" But I am quite happy to just wing it. And I think that's just just give it a go. Yeah. Give it a go. And I, I don't know. Um, I've worked since I was essentially twelve because my dad. Oh my god, my dog's now going to be really annoying. Zombie, no. I'm sorry. He wants to play. He does. He wants to, he wants to play. No, um, so my dad was the president of a football club, a local football club, and so. I worked in the football club from when I was about 12 or 13. Yeah. So, so you've got that strong work ethic. Yeah. From, yeah and also um, being around mainly male-dominated environments and being um, a female in those environments, I think, set me up to be able to work in those environments and not be put off or intimidated by blokes yeah. being inappropriate or trying to bully you or um, treating you differently because you're a woman. Yeah. So when I was 12 or 13, I was <clears throat> sticking up for myself and dealing with blokey kind of toxic mass masculinity in a way. And I just don't get, um, I don't get put off by it at all. I actually quite enjoy it. 
And so for someone who does get put off by that, because mm. um, I think it's probably more on the rare side that you've got that type of personality, mm. what, would, what kind of tips would you give them to be able to handle those types of situations where they might feel uncomfortable, but you have a way where, in which you handle um, yeah, that's a good that blokiness or, yeah. you know, th- that kind of intimidation that some people might feel? I've always um, used humour quite a bit and I always try and find common ground common ground with the person that I'm speaking to and I don't really get offended and when people are behaving like that I think it's because they feel inadequate or they're trying to make themselves feel better about themselves so knowing that I just kind of don't take it personally and I just give people the benefit of the doubt and I've always been able to build relationships with people of all different levels, whether it's people working on the shop floor at Holden um, to executives in a boardroom. I think that it's all about rapport building and I love communicating and I love learning about new people and working them out. Like I get a kick from being able to turn someone who's being a real asshole or dick yeah. into <laughs> my friend because I've actually taken the time to build a relationship with them. And a lot of the time, people who are doing that might have a really big ego. And so I just pander to their ego, find that commonality, and then build that rapport with them when they when they feel like I'm their friend. Mm-hmm. I really yeah, I really like that, especially the ability to reframe and look at the other person and, and not treat it as something's wrong with me in that mm-hmm. situation. And if something's not feeling right, it's not about you necessarily. It could be something that's going on with the other person. And their own ego or whatever is happening in their own lives. Exactly. So, um, And so you talk a lot about human behaviour and communication. They sound like they're some of your passions mm-hmm. and what you've basically created. Are there, any, are there any other things that, you know, you are really passionate about and how have you discovered them? Oh, God, where do I start? So I'm really passionate about personal development, so that's one of my values. And I read a lot. I listen to podcasts all the time. I listen to some of your podcasts once you ask me to be on there, which I love. And I love your, um, I love your whole concept about sparking joy and um, Marie Kondo and all of that stuff. And I actually Marie Kondoed my house. So I'm just constantly trying to learn new stuff and be a better version of myself and teach my son by being a good role model that that growth is just an ongoing everyday like occurrence and the fact that I've, I've done a lot of research into brain science like I'm really passionate about that and as I said before I'm I'm neuro-linguistic programming trained so I've done a master's practitioner level course in NLP so I'm fascinated with our brains and how it works and how um, how we can just rewrite the code in our own brains to be a better version of ourselves every single day. For someone who doesn't know what NLP is, do you mm-hmm. mind giving a little bit of an explanation? Sure. So neuro-linguistic programming is really the study of communication. So they have brought together all of the different theory around communication. So um, for instance, there's the Milton model. There is a lot of um, Freud's work in there. There's stuff around brain science. There's stuff around... Um, What's the Milton model? Milton model is basically the way that we use language to... Um, oh, God, how do I explain it? 
to use metaphors and and use colourful language that confuses a person's model of the world so that they can see things in a different way. Oh, yeah, okay. So it's really interesting. It's very, very clever. Yeah. So people who are really good at telling stories to help people understand what's going on for them or use a different... So, like, it's like a reframing technique, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if I talk about this stuff all day. Yeah, I know, I love it. <laughs> so, and I, sorry, I interrupted you as well. So, brain science, NLP, anything else? Uh, so, it's, um, it's got a whole bunch of modalities in there that can be used in different settings to help people who um, are stuck in a problem kind of state or people who have phobias, people who have limiting beliefs, um, one of the things that you learn when you do NLP is timeline therapy. So we were talking before about how zero to seven is the time where you basically form all your beliefs, behaviours, strategies for coping with things, and it's essentially because that's when you experience the five negative emotions. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so timeline therapy allows you to go back and release all of those negative emotions and get the learnings, and then it helps you... Um, create new strategies for coping with that emotion. So the first time you experienced anger is probably when you were zero to seven and you don't even remember, but you will have a whole bunch of kind of stuff attached to that that you're carrying around. And every time you experience anger, you will react in the same way that you did when you were a child that was maybe four years old. Wow. Yeah. So, and because you're four years old, you don't have the resources to be able to process, well, what does that mean how can I deal with it in a rational, appropriate way? Yeah. And, yeah. And so if, if you... So people who have children and they're within that um, age bracket, how do you... And you may not know this, but I'm so curious. How, how do you know how to handle those situations where your child is going through a negative emotional state? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do to help them understand what they're going through and be able to rationalise it and deal with it in a in a more positive or constructive way yeah that's a really good question I think the most important thing is allowing that child to experience the emotion because a lot of the time we tell kids stop crying come on man up get over it um you'll be right whereas um what I do with my son is is I'm empathetic and I'm like oh it's okay it's okay to be angry you know, we all get angry sometimes, just feel the anger. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we have issues later on in life is because we repress emotions and we don't experience them. It's totally normal to really experience the anger and let it out and scream and cry and be angry. But we condition children to not do that. So that's a really important way to help kids process it and experience it and then they cut it loose. It's when we repress things that they have creates an issue for us mm, yeah it kind of reminds me of how adults um kind of use the silent treatment sometimes mm. to deal with situations yeah. because they're probably repressing and trying to analyze everything that's kind of going on within their heads totally. so yeah it's super interesting yeah. so all of those passions that you've talked about nlp that um that passion for telling a story and adding color to conversation, understanding different people, whether you know they're younger or they're more senior in executive roles, 
that has probably led you to where you are today. Mm-hmm. And you've spoken about, you know, moving from Australia to go to the UK and experience those corporate HR roles, which you studied for, and then coming here and starting um, at Holden in a, in a kind of senior position mm-hmm. for, you know, for that time and also being the only HR person. Yeah. So how has that, all of that experience led you to start up HR Gurus? And you've also uh, have got Generation Us and We Care as well. Correct. Yes. So can you talk to us about, you know, what made you move out of corporate to do HR Gurus? Because now, um, as you would know, it's a lot easier for people to start businesses. Whilst it's still really difficult to actually make them successful, it's just as hard. Yeah. It's easier to get your foot in the door and just start. But like the cost to start is really low. Is, so yeah. can you talk to us about your thought process and how you went from that corporate mindset to jumping into HR Gurus and kicking off your own business? Yes, I can. So... I worked in corporate HR for 11 years, so after Holden I went to West Farmers, which was amazing because that taught me about the importance of commerciality and how to read a balance sheet because for them it was all around the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and at Holden I didn't really get that exposure. And then from there I went and worked at Host Plus Superannuation, so I went back to kind of finance, finance yeah. um, <laughs> interestingly. but. Um, it was really funny. I've always been very ambitious, and I've had personal goals that I've written down, and I've, um, you know, I've had vision boards. I still do it now. But I remember when I when I was about twenty eight, I had a vision board, and you know, had all these things that I wanted to achieve by the time I was thirty. Because you know, by the time I was thirty, like I just thought that, that was so old. Life's over at thirty, guys. <laughs> pretty no. much. Pretty much. So yeah. you know, I wanted to buy my first house. I wanted to be earning a hundred thousand dollars. I wanted yeah. to be an executive and have people reporting to me. And I ticked off all of those things. And so, by when I was twenty nine, I was appoint, appointed to the role of executive manager of HR at Host Plus. And I was reporting to the CEO. And I was, you know, I had to go to board meetings. And I was like, oh my god, I've made it. I've ticked off all my, you know, I had my own office with like a view of the city, I had a car park, I had like a, I remember I had like an American Express card. Goals. I know, and I was like, oh my god, I'm so, um, you know, I've made it. Yeah. And then very quickly the novelty wore off and I was like, why am I not happy? I've got everything that I really wanted and I obviously did a lot of reflection and it was because... I wasn't actually living according to my own values and I realised that working in corporate HR wasn't aligned to my purpose and what I wanted to be doing. And so after some soul searching and um, it was pretty scary, like it took me a while to actually do it, I just decided that I wanted to do something myself. I've always been very independent and I've always been um, a bit of a risk taker. So I was like, I'm just going to give it a crack and do something by myself. I wanted to create something that was really aligned to my personal values and my passion. Excuse me. And um, and I started HR Gurus and in January it'll be 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, so... Congratulations. Thank you. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing and for the first 12 months I was really just selling my time for money. Yeah. And um, I just saw a gap in the market that there were so many small to medium businesses that needed a really senior HR person to build a HR function for them, but they couldn't afford a full-time HR resource. 
Yeah. So I thought I'll just create a business called HR Gurus and I'll, I'll basically um, provide them with like a virtual HR manager and come in and, and that's what I was really good at was setting up a HR function. Um, but then I don't, I'm not excited about maintenance. Yeah. We get involved in the politics and then all of the other stuff that comes with being in corporate HR. Yeah. And I was also really disenfranchised with what HR is in a corporate environment because essentially you are the... I felt like it's like we're in the HR bitch when we want to do something bad or we want to... We'll make a decision and then we'll wheel in HR and they have to implement it. Mm-hmm. And so I felt torn because my whole passion is around transforming people and helping people be the best versions of themselves and essentially what I did in corporate HR was see people at their worst and instead of having an opportunity to help them turn it around, corporate businesses like this person's shit, we want you to get rid of them. Yeah. Because they just want the quick fix. Well, the manager will and come... And they don't want to do it themselves. Correct. Correct. So mm-hmm. the managers would come to me and go, Emily, I've got this employee, they're not performing... It's been going on for like a year and I've had enough. I just want you to get rid of them. How do I get rid of them? And I'm like, well, that's not actually really fair. Have you, have you coached them? Have you sat them down? Have you documented any of these? No, I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, well, the proper way to do this is we need to give them an opportunity to improve. Let's sit them down and give them some feedback, but they don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And I can't give them feedback, even though they want me to, because I'm not their manager. Yeah. So it's just this really shit situation that doesn't work that creates bad blood between the HR so the HR function is seen as the policy police and the executioner yeah which definitely is, do you think that's changing now or do you still think that it's a little bit old school in that way I think it's still that way honestly I think a lot of HR functions think that they're doing better and that they probably aren't as bad as that but if you ask most big corporates what they think of their HR function I think that it would be very similar mm-hmm. it's such a shame isn't it it is it is you, you're describing what your passions are and what you really care about that is what HR should be Correct. that's what they should be enabling in their leaders and then mm-hmm. all the people that work in an organization yep. versus being the, like the police and the company where you come in when things go wrong it should all be about building up people so you don't get into messy situations like that. Exactly. So HR Guru's philosophy has always been that we want to change the reputation of HR. Mm. We want to be enablers. And our job is to coach the managers to be their own HR guru so that they don't need us anymore. So they're the clients that we really want to work with. So the, the clients who understand the importance of uh, developing their leadership team so that they can do it properly rather than avoid it and then bring in wheel in the HR bitch to, to do it for them. Yeah. So um, we, and initially look at the start of our journey, we probably still had to do that because you, you need to make money, but we've really changed our focus and we have a program now that we're really proud of called a peak performance program. So if we have clients who come to say, oh, we've got someone who's underperforming, we actually say, well, we have a program where we do it very differently and we bring in a coach to work with that person. And we help to improve their performance to um, a, a, like an acceptable standard through a coaching process. We help coach them to realise that maybe that job is not for them and the reason that they're not performing is because they're not happy and they're a square peg in a round hole. But we allow them to make that decision on their terms. And you know, 
probably got like a 99% success rate where we get people's performance up or we get them to realise, well, I don't really want to be here. And quite often they leave and they feel really empowered because it was their choice. Yeah. And we help coach them to realise, well, actually what I want to do is this. And we had someone recently, a guy, who decided to leave and um, went and got another job and he's now managing a team and he wants us to come in and coach him wow. and his team. So that's a really that's really good feedback that what we're doing is working because normally, you know, they don't ever want to speak to you again if you're the person who was responsible for terminating you. Yeah. Wow, I really like that. And I, and I have actually seen that uh, in a few people where their performance hasn't been up to expectation and it is really because that role is just not suited to them. So I'd be really keen to hear from you. Obviously, you need a whole coaching session to get someone to realise that on their own. Yes. But what kind of questions do you ask people to make them start thinking differently outside of, um, you know, I'm just not, you know, I'm not good at this, but I can get better to actually maybe I'm not even happy being yeah. in this organisation and doing this role, what, what kind of questions would you ask somebody in that situation? So it really, um, it's 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 not a one session kind of thing. So oh, okay. we, we normally um, we normally do between six and eight sessions. Sometimes it's more than that because wow. it just takes a really long time. Yeah. The first that session, makes sense actually. Yeah, yes. yeah. I wish that it's we could do it in one, one session. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if we could do it in one session, my God, it would be amazing for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's really the the first session is is just letting them vent and helping them to process what's going on for them. And a lot of the time, it's not just about work. There's all, there's always other things happening. So what we try and do is get them focused on, well, what do I really want? What's important for me? Mm-hmm. And um, what are my values around work? And then what are my, what are my strengths? So what am I best at? And then um, by, by helping them kind of go through this process of self-discovery themselves, then all of, they have all of these aha moments along the way, which is what coaching is about. We could sit there and tell them, look, you're not very good at facilitation, um, so this job is all about facilitation, but when we allow them to, to have those epiphanies themselves, then they're much more likely to go, oh, wow, okay, now I can kind of get this. And a lot of the time it is ego, and they have to kind of have this grieving process to realise, well, this job that I thought I was really good at, maybe I'm not that good at, but then get them very quickly focused on, well, what are you good at and what gets you excited and what are you passionate about? And then how do we how do we get you a job where you're doing that every day and you're happy and you're excited? Yeah. And yeah. just thinking about uh, what you did as well for yourself in terms of a little bit of discovery mm-hmm. and realising what your values were and what your purpose was. What were some of the things that you did yourself to realise these are my values, this is my purpose and this is what I want to start? Because I think a lot of people want to know that. Mm -hmm. They want to do some self-discovery. They want to work on themselves and become more self-aware as people. But sometimes people are stuck or lost or just don't know where to start and it feels a little bit overwhelming for them yeah so what would you suggest to people who might want to do a little bit of that work just to be really clear on what they're good at what their values are Mm -hmm. and what their purpose is or you know what they should be doing yeah sure um so one of the first things I did that really changed my business and myself was I got a coach 
So I think it's really important for people to have a coach. And it's really funny because um, when I sometimes like, oh, I don't need a coach anymore, and then mm-hmm. I'll just go it alone for a little while, and I always just end up going, oh my god, what am I doing? Like it's just really important to have somebody to a talk to about what's going on for you and b help keep you accountable because we all get busy and a bit crazy and it's just really good to have that support system for yourself um, and you need to find somebody who you connect with and that you have really good relationship with because you know I've told certain coaches that I have things that I've never told anyone before um, because they help you really discover yourself in a really kind of safe and positive way and you know we do a lot of coaching at HR Gurus and Generation Us and Generation Us our passion is like creating the next generation of purpose-led leaders Mm -hmm. so for us it's all about helping people discover who they are who they want to be and what they need to do to get there Um, and it's really about um, asking yourself those those big questions and also facing the brutal facts about where you're at and where you what what you're willing to do to actually get what you want and that involves going out of your comfort zone and doing things that are very scary and so we help kind of support people through that process which is is awesome we love we love doing that yeah i absolutely love that mission are you finding that a lot more leaders are being open to that kind of discovery now because i think it's been talked about a lot more now in almost in like maybe the last three or five years Mm -hmm. and maybe that's because I've I've just kind of started doing that but do you do you find that it's becoming a more important focus for leaders now rather than you know maybe 10 years ago definitely definitely so I um I love Bill George's work I don't know if if you've heard of True North okay yeah so um and his work is actually quite old um, but it is still so relevant today and it's about authentic leadership yeah. and um, you can listen to it on Audible. It Actually, the first book he wrote was Authentic Leadership and then he wrote a new version called True, Finding Your True North. So it's all about helping leaders um, own their story because what, what he found through his research, I think they, they interviewed um, the first book about 50 successful business leaders and then the, the second book I think a hundred and he, built, he continued to build on his work and it's all about authentic leaders own their story and they are very good at getting the learnings from the hardships that they've experienced and turning that into their leadership story um, and so that's part of what, what the book talks about um, and the theory but it's, then it's all about this integrated life so a lot of the work that he did like a long time ago is actually so relevant today and is what we both base a lot of our coaching programs on. Um, we've just kind of taken a lot of his stuff and made it our own um, and put our own kind of flavour on it. And as, as you know, with Generation Us, we do a lot of work with millennials. Yeah. And one thing I've, I've found through my research with millennials is that they're so passionate about purpose. So they want to come to work and feel like they're making a difference, that they're having an impact. Mm-hmm. And so our model is about helping them kind of tap into that and find that. Mm. I, and I I feel like that personally as well. Mm-hmm. I feel like 
every day when I'm working, I want to be able to make a positive difference in someone's life, be it small or big. Correct. What do you think it is about millennials that they've developed this within them, this feeling of every day when I'm working because you're spending so much of your life at work that you want to be making a difference? Do you think that the other generations have this within them as well and maybe it's just become something that's been highlighted in like lately or what do you think it is that's made this such a big thing for millennials versus maybe the other generations Mm, it's a really interesting question I think it's there's multiple things at play here first of all I think millennials grew up with parents who told them you can be whatever you want like the world's your oyster Mm -hmm. and they've also grown up in Beth best I can't even speak (laughs) best economic times on record so there are so many opportunities available to them today they live in an age where information is just so at their fingertips so they have this belief system that they can do anything and literally you can start a business in a day from your bedroom you can start an online shop on Etsy if you really want to whereas 20 probably 10 15 years ago like starting a business 10 years ago was not as easy as it is now and so many people tried to talk me out of it oh my god why would you leave your safe cushy job at host plus to go and start your own business you're an idiot Mm. my parents were like completely freaked out because there was this fear factor what if the economy crashes Mm. you know all of this kind of negative stuff um and i think that that plays into it where because millennials just believe that they can Mm-hmm. And they do, and they will. And their, their entrepreneurial mindset is, I think, so embedded because they just don't have this fear of risk. And it's just, they can. There's just the opportunity to do it. And there's so many people doing it. They're like, why not? I can see it everywhere. Yeah. And I think you nailed it by saying that we're in this really... We're actually... Millennials are really privileged, actually, mm-hmm. because of this economic time frame that yep. we have grown up in that we don't have the context of our parents who did see the recession that mm-hmm. did see struggle and so because we haven't seen that with our own eyes we haven't experienced it mm-hmm. we do have that mindset and um, I'm not sure if you've read Michelle Obama's book Becoming I have I have got it but I haven't read it so <laughs> there's one component which ties in so well with what you just oh, said wow. okay, I'll have to read it now yeah oh it's so good so she talks about how she was you know working as a lawyer for so long um, and then she got to a stage similar to you where she just felt like uh, why why am I not feeling what I thought I would feel by now? Yep. Um, and so then she went on, you know, a journey of figuring figuring out what her purpose was. Yep. And when she was telling her mum about all of these things, the mum just turns around and says, you know, that's you're in such a position of privilege. Exactly. To be able to think about what your purpose is mm-hmm. and what really matters that is privilege, right? It is. And I think a lot of us don't realise that because mm-hmm. we don't sit down and think about, you know, what the other generations went through, what they experienced and how lucky we actually are to have that mindset and to grow up with that mindset as well. Yeah, I would agree. It's, um, it's really interesting. I did a, a presentation last night at this meetup group and someone raised the, the issue or... Someone raised this thing about jealousy. Do you think that some of the generational tension is is about jealousy? Because the older generations are actually just jealous that millennials have it so easy and so good 
and they have all these opportunities that they didn't have and they just can't get their heads around it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's definitely part of why there is so much tension. I think that the technology thing definitely created a gap in, in thinking, understanding um, that probably wasn't there before. And the interesting thing is that millennials are the children of baby boomers mm-hmm. and they call it the echo boom because millennials are the biggest generation on record and baby boomers previous were the biggest generation on record. And so they all had kids and now we've got this massive millennial generation, which in Australia, millennials are the biggest um, cohort of our population. Oh, wow. Yep. So, and globally, they're the biggest cohort of the population globally. So... We're taking over. (laughs) You are taking over. So the balance of power has now shifted and that's also very frightening for other people. And I find Gen X, I'm Gen X, um, are probably... uh, they are, um, how, how should I put it? They're probably the most frightened because they feel like millennials are taking over um, in the workplaces that they work in and they're kind of like the poor cousin and millennials are getting promoted over them and from the research that I've, I've seen, it's all about digital intelligence or DQ. Mm-hmm. So millennials are getting promoted because of their digital intelligence because they are just so far, so much more advanced in that, in that realm than Gen X, but uh, one of the things that, that I talk about a lot when I have these conversations with people is the need to have this transfer transference of knowledge both ways. So millennials need to um, learn from the older generations and vice versa, because we need each other. There is um, a wealth of knowledge that the baby boomers are going to take with them when they, when they leave the workplace. Um, and we need to somehow harness and retain that because I think it's really important. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And millennials need to have more understanding of the other generations that they're working with. And we have an aging population, so people are staying in the workforce longer. And we we already have ageism at play here. Yes, for sure. We talk about how in Australia, if you're 45 plus, you um, are seen by the employment laws to um, find it more difficult to find another job. Now, I'm 42, so that means in three... young. It is. It's really young, but you actually get a a week of extra pay because I think it's it's pretty old school thinking. They haven't really adapted it for, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, because 45 used to be quite old in the workforce. Wow. So not anymore. Not anymore. No, I mean it's bizarre. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in yeah, the future. Yeah, definitely. And when you, when I think about um, that kind of transfer of skills and learning from one another, I know that you you speak a lot about millennials, and there's a few other questions that I had about it. But what do you think mel- millennials should know about the other generations? Like you said, like I feel like we probably need to be a bit more educated, mm-hmm. and I only really started learning about you know the the nuances and the reasons behind why we are the way we are versus the other generations mm-hmm. by listening to you. Yep. So do you mind shedding a little bit more light on um, the what is important for millennials to know about the other generations and what we can really take from them and learn from them, be it in the workforce or in life? Yeah, um, that's a very broad question. There's so much... So much in that so question. So much in that question, <laughs> but um, I guess if you think about what 
in, in, the, in the context of work, what's important for the different generations varies. So if you think about millennials, what's important for them is purpose, impact, fulfilment, flexibility, freedom. Um, they, want, uh, they want to be, um, to be involved in decision making. They want to work for a company that aligns with their values. That's more important for them. But if you think about Gen X, they grew up during a time where um, the casualisation of the workforce really became a big problem. There was a recession. Um, we had the gig economy. So um, the contractor kind of model was what was brought in. So for them, what they're looking for is security because they didn't really have that. And it's probably a lot better now. So that, that's some of the drivers for them. Mm -hmm. um, they really like being challenged, but they're quite autonomous in the, in the way that they work. So you can give them broad instructions and they'll just go away and do it. Whereas millennials want to be coached, they want guidance, they want their manager to be their friend, mm. their leader to be their friend. Um, That's so true. <laughs> yeah. So they want to come to work and have fun and be yes. themselves. Whereas a Gen X is quite happy to go to work and work in a suit and have a bit of a separate work life. Whereas with millennials, it's it's all in one. So when yeah. they're at work, it's all in the same. They, they want to be the same person. Yeah. And then if you think about baby boomers, for them, um, security, um, authority, respect, um, like money was really important for them. So they grew up in a time where you had a job for life and that you had a career for life. So if you were a lawyer, that you did that for your whole life. If you worked in a factory, you did that for your whole life. Yeah. Um, so it's, as you can see, the val they value different things and they want different things. So baby boomers grew up in a time where um, promotions were given to the person with the most seniority. So if you came to work, did your time, um, respected your respected the system, you would be rewarded with getting a promotion. Whereas that's not relevant anymore. So they find it very difficult to understand why would you promote that young 26-year-old when I've been working here my whole life? Yeah, That's not fair. So we now promote people based on their potential their capability and their willingness to kind of have a go, which mm. I think is a lot better. But for a baby boomer, they find that quite disrespectful. Yeah. And they find it disrespectful to look at a CV of somebody who's jumped around and had a, a different job every two years. Mm. They see that as being um, somebody who doesn't re respect the system. So you can see where the clashes, the clashes come in. I mean, I'm a zenial, so... I don't consider myself to be a Gen X or a millennial. I'm on the cusp. Um, and I'm just writing a whole series of blogs about this at the moment because I think there is a micro-generation and there's going to be a lot more micro-generations. So if you look at how the, year, the, the span of years in between generations, it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter because it used to be um, defined biologically based on the span of time between parents and their offspring and now it's based on socio socioeconomic or so oh, yeah so it's defined sociologically oh, I um, didn't know that. yeah okay. so um, the generations are getting smaller and smaller yeah. because you can't use that as as the definer now because yeah, that makes sense what the average age of people having kids is 31 33 in Australia yeah wow so it's it's based on what's going on from an anthropological perspective rather than 
based on an age bracket. Yeah, that's so interesting. Mm. And I see everything that you've spoken out play out in a workplace that has, you know, people of all ages because I remember even being in a role and wanting to wanting to leave because I absolutely hated it. But um, I remember someone saying to me, oh, you know, it doesn't look good that you're leaving after, you know, 14 or 15 months. It's just, yep. it, it's not going to look good. If you go into your next role, you should stay there for at least two years. Yeah. And I was just thinking, that is that is crazy. Why would I need to do that if I've got good opportunities to go to and people are willing to accept me at any time? Exactly. Um, and so that really stuck with me, that mm. kind of thinking, because yep. I just, I just, I thought, it was, I got offended. I was like, that's crazy. Like, why would someone think yep. differently? Because I left my job after a certain amount of time. So yeah, it's really interesting to see, to hear the perspective, but understand it as mm-hmm. well and be able to empathize with it a little bit more. Uh, and that's, you know, we, I talk to, to clients all of the time who are constantly saying to me, well, I just don't hire millennials because they jump around too much. And I'm like, well, you really need to reframe what a loyal employee looks like because you're not going to have any loyal employees left if you have that mindset. Because staying in a job for five years, particularly because a lot of our clients are small to medium businesses, they're like, but we just can't have people who are only going to stay for two years. And I said, well, that's the reality of the world we live in. And I would say that two years is a really long time to stay in a job yeah. in this day and age. So either you you embrace that or you, you're going to be happy with people who, who are willing to stay in a job for five to ten years. But I would argue that they stagnate and they are now probably your worst performers because they're unmotivated and disengaged. Yeah. And they're just like, oh, okay, like they just can't get their heads around it yeah and um what is do you know by any chance what the average time frame now is of someone being in a role a millennial being in a role so in a for millennials my research demonstrated that oh, i can't remember i should know these stats off the oh, heart um but a huge proportion have been with their current employer for one to three years and then uh, even more significant had been in their current job for three to five years mm-hmm. and one of the things that a lot of them are looking for is security because they just don't get that anymore mm-hmm. so part of the dialogue is we want these young people to stay in jobs for long periods of time but we now live in an age where finding a stable secure job is very difficult mm-hmm. in australia the biggest employer is small business Oh wow! And, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so a lot of people get made redundant, or their jobs get made casual, or contractors, or they get offered a contractor job. So I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect between the understanding of we have a casualised workforce in Australia, and then we have people who are job hopping because they're trying to find stable employment. Mm, yeah, that's really really interesting. Mm. Um, and so I know that you obviously with your NLP work and your coaching work, you work with a lot of leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you talk to me about what you think makes a great leader in today's day and age with lots of millennials, Mm -hmm. um, the shift in how we work in terms of flexibility, um, being fulfilled purpose, et cetera. Yep. What do you think makes up, makes a really great leader in today's workforce? I think that it's about that authentic leadership piece that you need to be, um, Kind of happy with who you are and have no ego and be a um, you know a selfless leader or you know there's there's other bodies of work around the five levels of leadership and the humble servant leader I think that that is kind of the the new age 
benchmark for leadership um, because what people want is they want to work in a place that's collaborative so they want to be involved in decision making they want to have a relationship with their boss or their their manager they want to like them they want to they actually want to feel like you're their friend mm-hmm. and so that's a massive shift in thinking from the command control type leadership that some people are still hanging on to um, I don't want to be sexist but if you think about the the average old white male leader that is kind of the leadership style that a lot of them are still holding on to holding on to if you think about the um, quintessential male CEO that's kind of the way that they mm. they operate but I mean I do a lot of research around millennial entrepreneurs and they are all servant leaders mm. they all like if you think about people like Nick Molnar who's one of the founders of Afterpay yeah. so I've done a lot of research into him he doesn't like the people that he works with calling him their boss he hates it and I actually yeah I hate that I, I mean with my team they're like what do we call you and I'm like I don't know Emily yeah. I don't want to be referred I don't want people to like you know it's like oh who's this oh this is my boss Emily yes. and um, I think that that is really the cornerstone of the new age leadership leadership style where you actually come to work you have a relationship with the people you work with people who like you as a person are going to be much more likely to go at the extra mile and do things um, the right way and have integrity and be honest and do all of the things that you want people to do mm-hmm. if they like you if they don't like you like there needs to be obviously a line mm-hmm. but I have a very close relationship with the people that I work with I kind of feel like they're my family yeah and I think that's the new kind of the new age workforce that we need to be yeah. talking about I love that that sounds yeah. like that sounds so warm and so welcoming to walk yeah. into every day like your second family yeah um in organizations where you've got those types of leaders the kind of feedback that I've heard um amongst others is if you're that type of leader especially you you also get feedback around um you're not showing yourself off as a leader by being the way you are because you know you're it's almost very very humbling that you don't appear like a leader because Mm -hmm. you know you don't like to be called a boss or a leader you want to you know you're on the same page as everybody else it's almost like you're working with your peers it's not about hierarchy but there is um some kind of perception around well you need to kind of show some sort of dominance or um, you need to show something to, to that says that you're a leader. Mm-hmm. How do you how would you handle that type of perception or feedback? Because um, I've I've heard that in the yep. workplace, especially when there's lots of different um, yeah, yeah. people of it, yeah, and different ages. Oh, uh, I think that yeah, there's definitely this whole thing around people having a perception that that humble servant leaders are soft. Yes. Um, But I think what it comes down to is leaders who lead authentically are leading based on their values. And so what we do in our leadership programs and our coaching is teach leaders that you need to use use your values and your purpose or your true north Mm -hmm. to define how you're going to deal with those situations. Mm -hmm. So it's like stepping up when the shit hits the fan and making the hard choices and doing things that you don't want to do and having hard conversations but doing it with honesty and integrity in the context of, well, these are our values and this is why we're doing it. And when you do that, it's obviously empowering. 
everyone understands that, okay, this is kind of the, the rule book for how we're going to do things, and then everybody wins, and everyone understands the why. Whereas if you, if you lead by um, wanting to be popular or avoiding hard conversations, and look, I think leadership is a journey and you're going to make mistakes along the way. Like if I think about what kind of leader I was 10 years ago, working in corporate to what I'm like now, I've done a lot of work on myself and I've made a lot of stupid mistakes and I've um, you know, had some epic fails. Like even yeah. working with millennials in my own business, I at one point hired three millennials all at the one time and they all left within the first six months. Mm-hmm. And that was because of me failing as a leader. But I got the learnings and now I'm doing all this research so that <laughs> people don't have to make the mistakes that I made um, because I think that millennials bring such enormous value to the table but you need to know how to like spark the fire in them. Yeah. And if you don't then they're going to leave because they can. And where can people, because I know you've got the e-book, so mm-hmm. where can people find that e-book? Because it's got all this information about the research that you've um, uncovered. Yep, so if they go to generationus.com.au and then there's a drop-down menu research and then there's a whole bunch of blogs as well about heaps and heaps of stories about amazing millennial entrepreneurs because what we want to do is change the dialogue and change the narrative and showcase what I call to be the millennial mindset. So I'm actually writing a book called The Millennial Mindset and um, I've done the qualitative research, which is the thousand um, person study that I did, but now I'm doing, sorry, that was the quantitative part. I'm now doing a qualitative part, so I'm interviewing millennial leaders. How exciting, how much more do you have till you finish? Oh God, it's just like a labour of love. (laughs) I want to finish it. I'd love to finish it this year, but probably not going to finish it but um one to look for next year yeah yeah like I've got probably 50 people who've done an additional survey and I've done about 20 um interviews with millennial leaders all over the world wow so it's really cool and so I'm trying to put those stories into the book which is obviously yeah takes a lot of time time. that sounds awesome I'll include that link in the show notes awesome Okay, so moving on to workplace culture, Mm -hmm. I'd love to know your thoughts on how would you define workplace culture and Mm -hmm. what you think makes a great workplace culture? Yeah, well, I think for me what what defines a workplace culture is what's acceptable around here. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the unwritten behaviours of what goes on and they're really defined by your values. And we do a lot of work with clients who come to us and they're like, oh, we're just um, we're getting really annoyed because people aren't doing what we expect of them. And I'm like, well, do you have a set of core values that you live by? No. Um, and I'm like, well, there's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't have them written down and you don't live by them, then it's just you're kind of leaving it up to... Up to them. Up to them. And quite often it, it starts to focus on the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's really important to have a core set of values and then to define them. So we help our clients define what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And then we layer that through all of the HR processes and policies and everything that we do. Yeah. So that's how we manage people's performance is based on the values. That's how we reward people is based on the values. So you're constantly talking about them and embedding them. 
and then um, that's what people should be able to recite if you ask them so what are our, our core values so I think it's really important to have those yeah no sure. matter how big or small you are and whether you've got 10 or three it's really up to you and so if you do have a set of values that have been communicated quite well but you feel like the culture isn't so great mm-hmm. um, what do you find is causing that I mean, it's probably different <laughs> in different organisations, but is actually, there like is there something that ties this together where there is something up on the wall, people know what it is, but for some reason there's this toxicity in, inside mm-hmm. the office? Yeah. Uh, I think that the common denominator is normally the leadership and the fish rots from the head. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time, um, you know, we work with, with businesses and the business owner or well, the business owners will not be demonstrating the values, they'll be doing the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And then we have to have hard conversations with them. And we actually have a client at the moment that's talking about, oh, you know, people, what's wrong with our culture? And, and there's um, two people in a business that are continually fighting with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you're not respectful to each other, how can you expect other people to other do people, the same? Yeah, so it's pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how when you think about it, the basic things are just around humanity. Mm-hmm. Just being more human at work makes things so much easier for so everybody. Much easier. Yeah. Um, okay, so I would love to know from you as well. You are obviously really, really accomplished. You've mm-hmm. done. You've been running your businesses for ten years, or HR gurus for ten years, and yep. you've started up the other two. Um, what are some things that you've come across that you've had to work harder on? Like I would say, what are your challenges that you've been working through? And the reason why I ask this is if anyone else is going through something similar, it would be great to hear um, from you how you tackle it, how you handle it, and um, how you're getting better at that thing. Yeah. Um, It's really hard to stay motivated, I guess, when when it's all up to you and you're running a business by yourself. Um, So uh, I've probably burnt myself out a number of times mm-hmm. and so I've had to get better at um, having a balanced life because I'm so passionate about what I do I could work 24 hours a day and I have gone through periods where I have wow. probably worked myself into the ground and then I'm no, no good to anyone and you know there's been a few moments where I've literally had like a nervous breakdown just from overwork um, I've obviously got a son so trying to juggle being a mum and working is probably one of the hardest parts of being a business owner mm. I think and I've had to learn to be really strict about my routine so I get up at the same time I exercise I do meditation and I've had to work out what the best routine for me is and if I if I don't stick to that I literally just go off the rails um, so it's about having a balanced integrated life yeah. and I now have um Fridays off so working four days a week and having a day for myself like I used to feel guilty about doing stuff like that but I've now realized it's so important to be kind to yourself and give yourself a break you can't work 24 hours a day even if you love it Mm. you will burn yourself out and then you lose you lose sight of what's the big picture here what's my purpose and why am I doing that Mm-hmm. and it's a roller coaster so you're going to have these times where it's really motivated and you're up and then you're going to have like shit times where cash flow is really tough mm-hmm. and um, you're really struggling you're struggling to 
find motivation. Everything you touch turns to shit, mm. but it's all part of the process and you need to you need to learn how to weather the storm and having a coach is really important and having support. Yeah. I, I really like that. I think um, not a lot of people have spoken about the lack of motivation because people people uh, look at those who have started a business as people who are so energized by what they do all the time that they just have this energy 24 seven and that's why they can work around the clock. And so it's really important, I think, to hear from someone who still loves what they're doing and is passionate about it to hear from them that, um, you know, there are times where you feel like you're not motivated, even though you love what you're doing. And when you take a break, you get that guilt. Yes. Um, and that guilt I personally have felt as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So how do you how did you let go of the guilt and just decide to enjoy that extra day to yourself? Was it through <coughs> the coaching sessions or just happened over time? How did you how did you do that? Um, it's taken a very long time and a lot of kind of coaching and therapy. Yeah. Um, doing the NLP courses that I've done, you actually essentially. Um, having therapy on yourself because you're learning all the different techniques yeah. by having them done on not on you with you with you yeah yeah you, you don't do NLP on someone you do it with them yeah um so I think it's about it's it sounds like a bit of a wank but it's about a journey do you know what I mean like um being a business owner is a journey of self discovery. And you need to be willing to continually learn. And now I have this philosophy through everything that I've been through that, you know, life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. Mm-hmm. So everything that happens, I'm now like, okay, so why is this happening? What's the learning? What do I need to get out of this? So I can get the learning and move on. I do a lot of journaling. And I think that's really important, the self-reflection part of it. And the most successful business people have gone through really shit times they've got the learnings and they've used it to propel them forward and every dip that you're having is just a dip to get you to that to that next level and now every time something bad happens I'm like okay cool this is awesome because some something good is going to come of come of this and I'm going to get something amazing from it mm-hmm. and having that mindset just really flips it mm-hmm. um having said that there's sometimes when bad shit happens and it takes weeks for me to get out of the mm-hmm. funk but now I can recognize it and I get support, so I'll speak to my coach and go, okay, I'm having a, a meltdown. Mm. Um, I need to work through this. Let's freaking talk. Yeah, that sounds, that is really inspiring, yeah. I have Thank to say. You. It's a really good mindset to have and you're being honest in saying that you are going to have shit times, you feel like it's shit, it's going to be shit, but mm-hmm. you know and expect something good to come out of that, at yeah. least a learning. Yeah. And what would you say are some of your most proudest moments? Oh, God. I think making it to 10 years is pretty uh, much a proud moment. Yes. I'm also really proud that I haven't given up. Like, there has been a number of times where I wanted to sell my business or quit and just go and get another job. Like, honestly. Yeah. Some days I'm like, why am I doing this? This is so hard. And you just feel so alone and so unmotivated by what you're doing because, um, you know, it's a grind. Yeah. And so just being able to stick with it and keep going, I think, makes me feel really proud. 
For um, sure. For yeah. sure. Um, for 10 years, you would have definitely had a oh, lot yes. of ups and a lot of downs. A lot of ups, a lot of downs. Yeah. Um, and just also being able to juggle being a mum and having a business. I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Even though sometimes I have felt like I'm a shit mother because no. I work all the time. <laughs> and, you know, I remember this moment where... Sebastian had to at school write down. Uh, I think it was for Mother's Day. What what my you know things about my mum? What's her favourite thing? And he wrote talking on the phone. Oh. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my god, yep, that's so bad. Because I used to just when he was in the car, I would just be on the phone okay. doing business. Yeah. And like you know, the, the upside is he's probably going to be an entrepreneur and he's probably going to be business minded because he's just had it like in him. Yeah. drilled into him since yeah. he was. Like couldn't even talk, but yeah. on the flip side, I realised okay, I need to actually make time to speak to him and yeah. be present with him. And now we have a rule in the car when I drive to school that I'm not allowed to talk on the phone. Oh, yeah. And you know what? Um, I know that you see that perspective by by reading what he's written, but on the other hand, he's seeing his mum be passionate and really yeah. love mm-hmm. um, what she does every single day. Yeah, that's so rare. It is. So it is. That's. I think that's. I think that's nice that you know he sees that in you too. Well, yeah. Hopefully, he will um, want to be with a strong, independent, driven. Yes. Woman. Yeah. Um, although he's already told me that um, when when he grows up, he's going to get married to someone and they're going to work full time and he's going to stay at home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, he's basically going to marry someone like me, so he doesn't have to work. <laughs> Exactly. Yup. So it's pretty smart. So yeah, he's like, I'm gonna be a stay-at-home dad. Oh, yeah. Good on him. You know? I know, because my husband works part time and I work full time, or I've just gone back down to four days. We kind of yeah. take any turns. So yeah. There you go. There you go. I love yeah, it. Doing my piece for diversity. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, and what are some of the little things that you've implemented in life that have made a positive change? Mm-hmm. Um. And I know you've actually spoken about a few things like coaching seems like it's been a huge one. Yeah. Um, exercise routine. Is there anything else that you've done that's made a positive difference? Um, I think it's around surrounding yourself in your business with people that align to your values. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I now use my values to make decisions. Like, it's so important and I touched on it before. So if something is happening and I'm getting that uncomfortable feeling, it's because I need to do something that is going to be hard, but it's also challenging my values. Mm -hmm. So then I start thinking, okay, so my top three values are freedom, personal growth and integrity. And so if I'm doing something that's in conflict with that or something's happening and I have to make a decision, I'm like, okay, the best thing for me and my business is to make this decision in accordance with my values. And then it's hard at the time, but you just feel so much better afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. That's a... um, I did some coaching back at Telstra Days, um, and that's one of the things that they spoke about, that gut feeling. Like when you've got that that gut feeling that something's Mm -hmm. not right, always go back to what your values are and making sure that you're doing the right thing by your own values and not by someone else's. Yeah. Um, and so the last question I love asking is, who are your heroes? And they don't have to be famous people. Yeah. Um, they can be anyone. Mm. I love learning about what um, who other people look up to. Yeah. And why? I mean, I love Simon Sinek. I just he's an anthropologist. 
I just love the way he uses brain science in leadership. Like I'm fascinated by by that. Um, I think that's really cool, and I, I love his whole thing about start with why. It's really aligned to our whole concept of being purpose led. Yeah. And that inspired me a lot in the work that I do. I love the work of Bill George. I just think it's amazing. And given how long ago he did that work and how relevant it still is today, I just think it's like... It's pretty incredible. Incredible. Um, I also really like Brene Brown because she inspired me with her approach to research. So I've used her as inspiration to actually use research to frame conversations around things and frame methodologies because I think it's so important to have a basis for what what you're doing but I also really love Jordan Peterson I don't know if you've heard of Jordan Peterson Peterson. it's so weird he's like this um he is this Canadian guy who's a professor of psychology at Ontario University in um in Canada but he's become a YouTube sensation. Mm-hmm. He became famous because he was talking about um, this C sixteen bill in in Canada around pronouns. So he came out and spoke about how he thought it was wrong that you could that the law could basically say that you need to address people by their pronouns and just okay. yeah yeah. So that's kind of how I found him. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with everything that he talks about, but he's made all of his lectures available online and he wants to create an online university so that he, anybody can access essentially a degree. Um, so, yeah, he's very controversial. A lot of people think that he's very right-wing, but he's not at all. He's Just the way that he thinks and articulates himself is fascinating. Okay. And he's written a book called The Ten Rules of Life. Yeah. Which I'm going to have to look into yeah, this. Yeah. Everyone should read because, like, they're amazing. And one of the rules I love is, and he's very popular with millennials. Yeah. Um, so, one of his rules is don't let your children do things that will make you despise them. Oh. And I just think it's so relevant because if your child is doing something that makes you get really angry at them or that is negative, then you need to address it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway. They're your, they're your top... Top three. I think I said four. Three or four, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to look into those last two. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing all that knowledge with us. No I'm excited to share it with everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I felt so energised after speaking with Emily. She's so down to earth and has such a great energy about her. I think the ability to empathize with others is so important and it's one of my core values, which is why I found what Emily does so fascinating. It is truly helping people empathize with one another and it's changing the way we view behaviors in the workplace. I've included the HR Guru's blog on the show notes if you're interested in learning more and you can find Emily on all the usual social platforms. Thanks again for taking the time to listen in to this podcast. If there was something that you learned or really loved, please let me know. I'd love to hear it. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of Behind the Bee Box. My journey with Brainy Box has inspired me to share what I've learned from others with you in the hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business, or workplace. Your feedback and love is what keeps me going. So please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Brainy Box 
or connect with me on LinkedIn at Sherry Amami. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you soon.